Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venueland, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. Our adventures today take us down to Nashville again, and today we're a little something different. We're taking you kind of behind the music. A young woman who had a music career, faced an injury, overcame it, found herself in challenging new directions in the industry. It's a really fascinating story. I look forward to sharing with you today. As I said, kind of a, a different adventure, and we, and we like these uh, today. Uh, Camille Faulkner is our guest. Welcome, Camille. Hi. Thanks for having me. What a setup. That sounds like a documentary or something. I didn't want to make it too tragic. You know, I don't end. We're pitching it to Netflix <laughs> after this. <laughs> but but it's, it's a fast it's a fascinating story that you've got. And I and I definitely want to talk to you because you you've got some really different things from the music industry than it, a lot of our guests have ever had, you know, including from the licensing side to the touring side. Mm-hmm. And you really bring a very unique perspective to this. So let's start right at the core of it. Camille, what what prompted your love of music? Ooh. Um, well, it started at a very early age, around six. I uh, saw a live musician, I guess not for the first time, but up, up close for the first time and was just enthralled. So that started the obsession. I I was at an art camp. Uh, They brought in this violin player and I was like, yep, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. Nice. Yeah. So I was obsessed from an early age and then was really involved in a lot of the music programs in the church that I grew up in. And then also was just very into bands in middle school. And I I feel like a combination of all of those things informed my music trajectory. Now you were for uh, Atlanta at the time, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, down South and, and, you know, as a guy who in uh, elementary school, you know, carried a cello on his back to school. Okay. So, uh, you know, there was a point where I I wish I would have played violin, but what was it about the violin that really, that really spoke to you? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that I have a good answer because, like I said, it was kind of the first thing that was introduced to me. Now, I, I mean, now I'll kind of dabble in other instruments. Like I've played keyboard for people before. I play a little bit of guitar, but it, every time I go back to the violin, I, it feels right. I'm like, this is yeah. what I was meant to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you have that like comfort too. So it's like you're, mm-hmm. you're dabbling in the others and then you come back and it's like, this is the, uh, I don't know, like the auto mode, like every, like you probably just are so comfortable playing the violin because you've done it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, I can express myself in a very pure way through this instrument. So when you, you know, what, what is the point where it becomes something more than 
you know, something that was fun for you? What is the point where you say, hey, music is is kind of what I want to do with my career? That happened kind of in the high school era or were you were already in college at that point? I think it was high school. <laughs> I kind of equate music to like rec league soccer. Like it's something that I just always did, but didn't put a lot of thought into. It's like, oh, this is just the hobby that I do or the the extracurricular. But in high school, I kind of got to a point in my lessons where my teacher at the time said, okay, you're, I don't know, maybe a sophomore in high school, you need to decide, is this something that you're going to pursue? Are you going to, are you planning to major in this in college? And you need to make that decision because we're kind of at that fork in the road. Either we're going to take this super seriously, or we can continue, kind of continue on how we have been. And around that time, you alluded to this in my intro, but uh, I had a shoulder injury, like a rotator cuff injury. Is it from, was it from overuse? Yeah, I mean, it was from playing violin and wow. and I so much that, that it actually you know that it, that I mean that this is you know you know you hear it from a lot from athletes, mm-hmm. but it's that same thing. It's that rotator cuff, right? So yeah. you're at a point where you're playing. How often? I mean, hours every day. You know, hours yeah. every day. <laughs> yeah, and 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 so one day it just starts hurting. I it was gradual, but it got to the point where. I would play for maybe 20 minutes and then have to stop. Oh. Um, so it was pretty, wow. yeah, yeah. Um, very intrusive. So, I mean, I was going to physical therapy. I had steroid shots in my shoulder every now and then. And Jeez. I know, and I really had an amazing orchestra teacher through my high school at the time. Uh, her name's Jennifer Floyd. She's incredible. I know she, she plays for Lizzo now. She's amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. But uh, she really just helped me out in, and recognized what was going on and had like a couple of tips and tricks. But um, because of this kind of the limitation on how long I could play, I was like, okay, well maybe I won't major in this because I'm not sure. Like all the doctors I went to was like, uh, just stop playing violin forever. <laughs> That's the no. solution, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I was just kind of thinking of other things that I was interested in, but. But is this, let me ask you this, is this a common injury among violinists? Is this something that. I think it's somewhat common. Yeah. I think it's pretty common, actually. I think Isaac Perlman has the same injury. Not that I am equating myself <laughs> to him in any way. <laughs> But, uh, but it it is pretty common. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, that was just like a very defining moment of, I need to make a decision on what I'm doing. And, and once I got to college, I I decided I'm going to do audio engineering, but still minored in violin performance and was still a part of every ensemble and and did the whole thing. And luckily (laughs) overcame my injury you know it got better it got much better so I feel like we need to rename that injury to like violinist shoulder like you have tennis elbow and uh, what is the other like golfer's wrist or something (laughs) I feel like the violinists need to get a little love and you know (laughs) yeah truly so from (laughs) from Atlanta how did you end up at, at Middle Tennessee State studying audio engineering yeah yeah so I Decided I was interested in kind of the more sciencey math 
aspect of audio, or I was guessing that I was interested in it essentially. <laughs> and started doing research to see what programs are available in the country. And at the time, Full Sail was like a very big thing. It was Full Sail. Berkeley was had a great program. And then Middle Tennessee State University. And so like, you know, as I'm, as I'm researching, those are kind of the three that kept coming up. So, and also Belmont University uh, came up as well. So the first college I visited was Belmont, said not for me. And then the next one I visited was MTSU, loved it and, and just stuck with that. Um, it was the only college I applied to, just really made a quick decision, I guess, and didn't do much exploring after finding it. And, and that's in, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Where's, where's Murfreesboro? <laughs> Murfreesboro. Um, I just got to say it right. Yeah. yeah. It's got to sound like you have mashed potatoes in your mouth. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) it's maybe 45 minutes southeast of Nashville. So it's close enough that you're still getting into the city, but definitely far away enough that you don't necessarily want to go there every day after school. So, so it's probably why they have a great audio engineering program, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, with, with uh, Nashville being so close. And so you're, you're studying, you're studying that you graduate with your bachelor of science and, and while you're there, are you still playing occasionally? Yeah, so it was a really like formative time for me in my playing because up until then I had only played classical music ever and and there are all these creatives at MTSU, all of these songwriters and artists and people started asking me like, hey, I have this rap track, will you play on it? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is something I've never <laughs> done before. Like I play classical music, but just started really embracing I don't know, learning something new and trying something new. So yeah, while I was at MTSU, I was playing on a lot of sessions. I started playing live a lot, um, joined a couple bands and was even in like a bluegrass country cover band for a while. So I was really kind of exploring what it meant to play in other genres and kind of like, I don't know, be more flexible in my playing. You obviously have that audio engineering background, but then it led to you, you know, going on, you know, recording, like you said, what did you kind of get bit by that bug recording with some fellow students and then start kind of taking that more professionally? Cause you've obviously recorded on some different albums and is, is that sort of a natural progression from school to that? Um, do you mean like the sessions that I played during school? Did that lead to other things? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I <laughs> I kind I lucked out, and I feel like that's kind of the story of my life is I luck out in a lot of ways. But I did a couple of rap tracks for just a classmate, and that classmate ended up interning at this bigger um, rap and hip hop label, and one day at his internship, they fired their violinist. And we're like, we need another violinist today. And he's like, well, I know one. <laughs> and so, <What>? yeah. <laughs> that sounds so, so hip hop. <laughs> I know. They're like, all right, call her up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I got this call and then became this background vocal violinist for this entire label. Um, it's run by Derek Minor, who is just another great mentor in my life. 
So yeah, it, it it's crazy how the snowball effect kind of happens where if you just say yes to a couple of things and do a good job, like karma comes back <laughs> and will reward yeah. you, you know? Yeah. You know, you say you say you lucked out, but let's not let's not discount the hours <laughs> and hours and hours yeah. and hours yeah. of work that you put to get yourself in that position. So when that opportunity presented itself to you, you know, you were able to uh, uh, take advantage of it. And so, so now you uh, you know you, you graduated from Middle Tennessee State. Are you a, a session musician? Is that is that the right thing, or you know, kind of a freelancer? Yeah, I guess more of a freelancer and. I have always had like the side hustle, like the part-time job, whatever to, to make it work. But right after college was definitely, yeah, just doing whatever sessions uh, were offered to me. I was playing with whoever wanted me to play with them and yeah, going on these like very tiny, very rugged tours. Um, and yeah, so it started off really, really small and very local, I guess. And then just kept getting bigger and bigger opportunities. Is that a lot of word of mouth? Like you mentioned, I think that happens in so many industries, but you know, you're doing these little recordings, these little tiny tours. And then some of those artists you're working with talk to this other artists and they're like, we need a violinist. And then that kind of just spreads a bit because like you said, you're, you're getting a little lucky, but you're as Dave pointed out, and really, as you said yourself, you have to take advantage of that luck. So you have to work hard to where when you get that opportunity, you smash it. And then when someone else sees you live, they're like, I need, I need that violin or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, uh, there are three rules in Nashville. I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but it's, oh, um, okay. It's no. show, <laughs> show up on time, know the music and be a good hang. So those are the three, the trifecta of, of doing well in Nashville. So I just always try to, to make all of those happen every single time. I love that. I think, uh, yeah. I've never heard that before, but it's so true. I mean, I think that's, that can be applicable for to so any much industry, right? mm-hmm. any industry really. Like you want to be accountable by showing up on time do really well in what you're doing, but also no one likes hanging out with the jerks. You can be the best at your job and you can be there an hour early, but if you're an asshole, then what's it worth, you know? (laughs) Right. So it's kind of like, you need to be like great to work with and you need to be great to collaborate with, but then you also need the other two. So I love that. I think it's very applicable to Nashville, but really applicable to anything. Oh, totally. And I think it, it makes the word of mouth more valuable in a way than just like, uh, I need a violin player. Let me Google Nashville violin player, find some stale website. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, I'm kind of knocking it a bit. Like that is one way to hire somebody, but I think there's so much more value in having a friend saying, oh, I use this person. She was great. She was a great hang. You should definitely use her again, you know? So, you know, it becomes, you know, a, you know, you're, you studied audio engineering. Now you're, you know, you're playing, uh, uh, kind of being a freelance musician. Does this pay the bills, or are you also, you know, working part time at at uh, Target stock and shelves? <laughs> so for for a while, it did pay the bills. I was a full time touring musician with some um, bigger artists for. Can you drop few... names? Yeah. Okay, I can drop names. Drop some names. <laughs> Uh, the main gig for a while, I was playing with Julian Baker and Phoebe Bridgers and Lucy Dacus. And that 
that indie girl trinity came together as a super group yeah. <laughs> called, called Boy Genius. So I also toured with them. So that was that was a full-time gig for a few years. I decided to take a bit of a break, which ended up turning into a big break due to COVID. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> right. So so I was at the time thinking, okay, maybe there's a couple of tours I step away from. Um, so I got a part-time job at CSAC, which is a PRO. Um, and hang on, hang on. Now you're, you're dropping some stuff, but <laughs> okay. Okay. But, but CSAC, what is it? What is CSAC? Um, it's a performing rights organization. It's related to BMI. It's related to ASCAP, essentially an organization to make sure that songwriters and artists get paid for people using their music. So yeah, I work in licensing there and and now do that full time. Uh, Very cool. Pandemic. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I mean, we all know about music licensing stuff, but, but so, so what, what is it, what is a day at CSAC like for you? Yeah. Um, I would say it's much different nowadays than when I started but I'm dealing with a lot of contracts. So I, I deal more on the restaurant, hotel, sure. like f- festivals even um, to make sure that, it, it, like if you go to a bar and see a band play or hear music over the speakers, I make sure like they're benefiting from using these artists' music. So I make sure we're billing them so that we can then pay the artists. I love that. And does that kind of inform the other sides of the industry that you're attached to? Like when you've gotten involved with CSAC, has that educated you to where when you are then touring or when you're, or as you're looking at recording, do you look at some things through a little bit of a different lens since you know some of that business licensing side? Yeah, a bit, a bit. I feel like, I still feel like I wish I knew more. I know a little bit. And like I said, I'm more, I'm working in this very small area of like restaurants and hotels, some like gyms, (laughs) but I, what I have learned at CSAC that feels a little bit more applicable is when you are an artist or a songwriter that is affiliated with CSAC is affiliated with BMI. Every time that you play a show, you have to go to that website and you need to report all the shows that you play. And that's how you make money. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. So I have been sending, I've been sending out PSAs. Like, you know, I live in Nashville. Essentially all of my friends are musicians or creatives. And so I'll send out little PSAs, like, please report your shows so you can get paid. Cause I, I think it's just something that's so easily forgotten, but um, it's such a great resource for artists, especially like on a smaller scale. Now, Camille, we we have talked uh, about, you know, you being on, on you know, on obviously on the business side of things and obviously, you know, your love of music comes through in, in that and, and it's fun to do some of that, but, but you know, being on the road is something that so many of us uh, in this industry, you know, think about would, would I like being on the road? Mm. Would, it, would it be, you know, uh, something that I'd be interested in? Maybe one of these tours is just gonna snap me up one day, you know, in some capacity and take me out there. <laughs> But let me ask about this specifically. Okay. You know, as a as a venue nerd, as so many listeners to this podcast are, many of us have been to the Ryman in Nashville. You actually got to play on stage at the Ryman, right? Right. 
So what is that like as a musician? Does it <laughs> does it matter to you what the venue is? And do you get a different feel for different venues and different performances have different meaning to you? Or is it all just become a day-to-day job? Oh, no. I Well, I have stage fright a little bit. And no, it's all different. Um, the Ryman especially is different. One, it's seated. So there's just a little bit more of, at least for me, that's I'm a little bit more anxious just because like everyone's just staring at you. <laughs> yeah, focused, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, but I think with the Ryman too, uh, I kind of equate it to, so there's, there's some bigger things that I've done. I think the Ryman is that I've been on um, like Prairie Home Companion. I've been on some late night television too. And in all, yeah, yeah, I was on Seth Meyers. And so for all of those situations that feel a little bit more um, momentous, I um, essentially black out. (laughs) 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 So I like know that I was, I remember being there. I maybe remember walking on stage and then I don't remember anything else. But I think it's just my brain like realizing how big of a deal it is and being nervous about messing up or, or, you know, wanting to do the, the experience justice, I guess, like I'm on the Ryman stage. I need to, I cannot mess up. <laughs> right. Um, so, but I, I think it's so cool to, to realize like you're doing something that's so iconic and like such a huge bucket list for so many people. And so it's just like muscle memory then really like you're, you're up there and you're, you're so absorbed in it that you finish the show and you're like, okay, I played, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, no, you just, I didn't just, just go there. up there and hold the bow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, truly. Yeah. It's, it's muscle memory. I do a lot of like, I just try to deep breathe the whole time to try to stay calm in those situations. <laughs> I think, yeah, I've, I mean, trust me, I've not gotten anywhere close to any of those, but there are these times where you have some sort of big event or big thing that happens in your life that is in a short period of time. And sometimes I've like experienced something similar where the day goes by and then the next day you're kind of like, what just happened? You know, like it's it's almost like so sensational that you're brain has a hard time kind of equating that to reality in a way. So it makes sense that you, you mentioned, you feel like you're almost like blacking out because it's kind of this, it's probably like so sensational in your head that you're just like, what is going on right now? Where am I? (laughs) Right. And it's only after when I see the pictures, I like, I have a poster from one of the Ryman shows on my wall and it like reminds me, oh yeah, that did happen. It wasn't like a fever dream that I had. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what do you have any favorite venues that you've played? I mean, you mentioned that they're all a little different. And I I would wonder too if I think, you know, every venue from what I hear sounds a little different, right? With uh mm-hmm. just the shape of the venue and how sound bounces around it. Is that more prevalent with like stringed instruments and violin than it would be with like guitar or anything else, or is it all kind of similar? Ooh. Is that a really nerdy question? <laughs> oh, man, because I majored in audio, I have to be really intentional to like turn that side of my brain off 
uh, or try to at least. So I try to not be too picky about what I'm hearing or like maybe my uh, monitor mix because I'm in a lucky situation where uh, because I don't play guitar, I play this instrument that's essentially resting against my face the whole time. My instrument's screaming <laughs> in my ear at all times. Right. So, so <laughs> I can be a little less picky, I have found. I'm getting like a direct sound in my ear already. But I feel like festivals are the hardest uh, sound-wise. Um, I was trying to think of a favorite venue and I keep thinking about the Fillmore in Oakland, California. And I think that that was just such a like comfy stage. I love like, like a bigger room, but it's, there's like chandeliers. It's beautiful. Uh, but it's not too big that I'm blacking out and it's not seated <laughs> and the crowd is really nice and warm. So I feel like venues like that, or I played, oh my gosh, first Avenue, the, the venue Nobles, where, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like that, so cozy and just like comfortable. Some great rooms, but but you also did you did a lot of international touring too, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So tell me about you know. Tell me about touring, you know, uh, outside of, outside of the states and what that's like. Oh man! So all of those shows were smaller. I feel like touring internationally it's almost less about the shows, at least for me. I'm just like, I'm in Switzerland or like I'm in Japan, you know? And so I feel like that's like the main focus. And then the show is almost an afterthought, but- um, It's like the bonus, right? (laughs) Right, yeah, it's the bonus. Um, But it is really cool to be in other countries where they speak a different language and they still know every word. And they're still so, I mean, I feel like when you tour internationally, people are so stoked that you're there, but I feel like a lot of my experience is just trying to navigate like how to get around and how to order food. <laughs> and like, you know, well, let's, let's talk about that Camille, because you know, we, we talk about, you know, all the Fillmore first Avenue or you know, the Ryman or, you know, touring in Switzerland. But there's a reason why you took a break, right? It, it's, oh, yeah. It's, it's hard. Talk to yeah. me about what, how it, how it wears you down, I'm sure, at some points. Yeah. Um, at least in my experience, you know, every experience is different. But I just wasn't sleeping. I, I also have, like, dietary restrictions. So um, That's great with international stuff. Oh, yeah. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so like I'm like in Japan uh and and the person I was touring with is vegan so we were learning how to write in like kanji <laughs> I can't have dairy I can't have meat you know <laughs> like or like and like I was trying to learn how to like say these sentences in different languages yeah I think with some of the touring because uh there's so much travel like even internationally like if you're in Europe, you're in a different country every day. So the amount of travel that, and we're not in a bus internationally, um, the amount of travel that needs to happen and you still got to do the show and you have to load out afterwards and then drive a couple hours to a hotel or a little like almost like B and B and then get up early, drive some more, maybe do an interview and then get to the the show, it it was just a lot. And I was gone probably 
I don't know, seven months out of the year. Yeah. So yeah, it really like wore down on me. And I think also like if you're, you can't deal with anything personally when you're on the road. So at the time I was dealing a lot with anxiety and touring was only making it worse. I I wasn't going to be able to address that issue when my life was so hectic, you know? So, so yeah, yeah, I just kind of got to a breaking point. Um, not a breaking point, but just like, Hey, I need a break. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A a break point, literally. Yeah. A break point. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's really healthy though. And I think, uh, you know, probably there's other people that find it hard to do that or, or don't take the time and the space needed when they do hit that wall. Yeah. And so I think that's good. Like you said, because often when you're dealing with whatever it is, you mentioned anxiety, but it could be a bevy of different things. You need that space to kind of address that. And if you're the rest of your life is hectic, it's hard to do that. So I think, yeah, it was great that you realized, you know, that you, you needed that space and then took the action to do it. And then you got a whole uh, year and a half of a pandemic to yeah. buffer on. <laughs> yeah, you the world's like, oh, you need a little space? Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll give you some space. You just wait. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, truly. <laughs> but I think you're right. I mean, it's hard to, to step away from, I like selfishly love the attention. And so it's hard to be like, and, and it's just, you know, from an outside perspective, it's pretty cool. And it's a pretty unique experience and it's hard to say, uh, it's just hard to step away from that sometimes. So I definitely feel now like, ah, what if I had stuck with it? You know, but, but you're right. Like I absolutely made the right decision for myself. It's so important that you recognize that. And that's just very cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul, why don't you uh, lead in here with a story of that we've kind of been burying here, which is how (laughs) we have been burying the lead. Uh, yeah. So what I think that that leads us like during your pandemic time, and Mm -hmm. I really would love to hear your perspective of this, but as we've talked about heavily on this podcast, we, Dave and I, you know, have been kicking around this podcast idea for a long time. And then we found the time, uh, over the last, you know, year and a half that decided this is the time to launch it. This is the time to try to do it. And then, um, had, you know, Megan Ebeck and Samantha Marker, shout out to them, join our team, which was critical and getting it off the ground. And at the time I was doing the audio editing and I did not go to uh, school for it. So I was <laughs> scrambling and stressing and spending way too much time on it because I had no idea what I was doing. And that was kind of coming along to this breaking point where I was kind of like, this is not sustainable for me because we're recording, we're doing marketing and I'm doing the editing. And fortunately, I mean, unfortunately I was unemployed at the time, but fortunately I was unemployed because I had some time to do that. But around that time, we're like, we need to look for someone who might be interested in editing this podcast. And I posted it in our EAMC Facebook group and was like, we'll see. And then one person I think commented on it and said, hey, I'm a member of a couple groups in Nashville. Do you want me to share this in those groups? And I was like, yeah, that would be great. Like, that's awesome. And then uh, I didn't think it would lead to anything or I didn't know. Cause I was like, oh, these are people that are, you know, outside of the conference, they might not really be interested or, or get it. 
And then out of the blue, one day I get this email from Camille, who's like, hey, I heard about this in a group. And I was like, what? Amazing. And, you know, fast forward, we're on episode, this is episode 26. And you've done, I think, probably 20 of them with us or Mm -hmm. something, which is wild, not counting the bonus episodes. So what, what kind of led you to being interested in pursuing you know, audio editing for a podcast. And what, what was that like from your perspective, like where you found out about it and then sent an email and you probably got on a zoom with me being a total idiot goofball and then (laughs) decided to take that risk. Yeah. I, so I am a part of these Nashville Facebook groups, um, specifically ones that are specifically for women, uh, in the music industry. And saw just a Facebook post that said, this podcast is looking for this uh, audio editor, if anyone's interested. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I immediately got so excited. And I think, yeah, what happened first was I saw the post and then I decided I wanted to edit podcasts. It wasn't the other way around, but, but because I studied this and I hardly ever use my major. I'm playing so much and I kind of say that my major helped my ear a lot. Like I have a pretty, I can communicate with the sound engineer really clearly. I know what I want in the sessions that I do. But other than that, I feel like I'm not really using my major in any way. And so when I saw the post, I was like, what a cool opportunity to just keep using the skill that I worked on for four years, you know? Yeah. And so, so I reached out kind of on a whim. I can be a pretty impulsive person. So uh, my mom would always say like, get the job first and then say no. So uh, that's kind of, how, I like that. that's I like kind that. of how I operate. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to just see where this takes me first and then decide. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, and then we hopped on a call and it seemed great. And yeah, it's been so fun and such a good outlet for me. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So if you, you know, obviously it's a, it's a side of the business that you weren't as familiar with and, and you've really hit so many different sides of this, you know, you know, live music industry or, you know, and the music industry as a whole. But uh, from the from the venue side, coming at it from this side, what have you learned from, you know, people sharing their stories and, and being part of that experience? Yeah, it's been really cool to hear about the marketing side and especially on such a big scale. So I'm editing each podcast, but I'm always like, oh, this is so interesting. (laughs) But I think one of the biggest takeaways was I kind of viewed people in the music business as, I don't know, people who, who view fans or the audience as, as dollar signs. And so I was worried that I would hear all of these stories where it felt like the events were more viewed as like a transaction. And yes. And I have been so like pretty every episode is someone that you're interviewing that is so passionate about music, who is so passionate about live events in the community. And that has been so, so cool to feel like I'm seeing this other side of the industry that I'm unfamiliar with, but they're also on 
the same team that I'm on, you know, like we're, we yeah. all want the same thing and all are doing it for just the love of music and events. So that's been really, really cool. I don't know that I've learned any like hot tips on marketing, but <laughs> we like to keep some things to, you know, that we got to keep our own yeah. value. Yeah. So, so, and I, and I say this with, you know, with all respect, uh, because I ask myself the same question all the time. Uh, what do you want to do when you grow up? What's next? What's next for Camille? Right. Oh I mean, man. Really hit so many different things. You know, we are, we are one way or another coming out of this pandemic in its own, in its own unique way, but, but what's next for you? Ooh. Okay. Um, the main answer is, I don't know, but (laughs) (laughs) I've, I've started this, uh, well over the past, I guess, six months or so as things have slightly opened up just a little bit, I've, I've uh, extended my circle a bit, but I've started a songwriting community in Nashville, just like a really small collective. And through that, I have been writing my own songs for the first time. Ooh, so I know. So I submit a song, like we all submit a song every single week. And just kind of hold each other accountable and support each other. So that's been really cool. Like the goal is to eventually just perform songs as as myself, which would be great. Um, but I, I think what's next, I would love to start playing more again as as I'm able to. You know, I I don't have any control over that right now due to the ongoing pandemic. But yeah, I don't know. I I don't have a great answer because I'm not like a five year plan type of person. I'm more of just going through seasons and going through phases of what feels right in this moment, which is not a very career driven way of thinking. <laughs> no, but I think it's a really adaptive way of thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people get so hung up on those five year goals, and then if it doesn't go the way that they envision, then it's like it's almost seen as a failure because it's like this is what I told myself I would be doing in five years, right. and oh my gosh, I'm not anywhere close to that, or I went in another direction. So it, it may be something that is better. I mean, I think there's a you need a healthy dose of both, right? You want to plan a little bigger term. And like you said, you're, you know, hoping to perform some of your own music, but you also have to have the flexibility to ebb and flow with whatever comes at you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When you're ready to drop that first single, we know the perfect uh, podcast where you can. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's going to be our new intro song. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, we could use some new uh, intro and outro music. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, before we hit the outro music on today, uh, Camille, as I'm sure you know, we like to hit you with the fast five, five quick questions uh, where we get your, just your kind of your immediate response. How about your first real concert? First real concert was Shania Twain. And everyone, okay, everyone on this podcast knows exactly the venue that they were at, which blows my mind. It was in Atlanta. That's all I got. But I saw Shania Twain. That was my first concert. (laughs) How about your favorite concert you've ever, you've ever been to as an attendee? Ooh, okay. There is this artist. Her name is Madison Cunningham. She's pretty small. I, well, you know, she does well, but (laughs) she's not like arena huge, but I saw her at a small venue in Nashville and it is still the best show I've ever seen. How about one instrument you'd like to learn how to play? Something you want to, ma- you'd love to master. You haven't, ha- haven't had a chance yet. I really want to like be able to rip a solo on guitar. Yeah. 
Yeah, want to rock. How about one artist you'd like to play a concert with? Ooh. Oh, man. It's probably a lot. Yeah, but I mean, what's very, very cool is I've gotten to play with most of the people that I really admire in, in a really wonderful way, but uh, probably Haley Williams. Very cool. Yeah. How about, okay, last question. What is your theme song? What's the Camille Faulkner theme song, the song that plays when there is the uh, the reality show that follows you around and documents your life? I think, okay, going circling back, going back to the roots, man, I feel like a woman. There we go. There we go. All right. Well, Camille, hey, we appreciate all you do to help these adventures uh, in venue land uh, get shared with the world uh, as we we're mentioning in our last episode, the, the international listenership is, is pretty cool too. So thank you for being part of all that. And uh, thank you for sharing uh, your adventure with us. Uh, where can people find you if they want to follow you? Anything you want to plug? Yeah, um, I am on Instagram at Camille Faulkner. That's really the only place I, I lurk. So there you, go. <laughs> uh, there you go. Well, hey, we appreciate the taking time today and look forward to uh, talking to you more. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Camille. And thanks to everybody for listening to today's episode of Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews, if only for the amazing editing, so you can help others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. Adventures in Venue Land is a side project of the Event and Arena Marketing Conference, a nonprofit organization bringing together people in the field of live entertainment to discuss marketing, publicity, and sales trends. Find out more at eventarenamarketing.com. Audio editing and mixing by Camille Faulkner. Design and digital advertising by Megan Ebeck. Copywriting and publicity by Samantha Marker. Guest booking and brand strategies by Paul Hooper. Guest research by Dave Rettelberger. Marketing strategies by Paul Hooper, Megan Ebeck, and Samantha Marker. Thanks for joining us. Until the next adventure.